Welcome to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Flaxman. Other working titles that I've had in my mind for this podcast on its inaugural episode day are something like Walking the Winding Path to Success and No Skinny Experts. And I will break down what both of those working titles mean to me as I'm introducing you to me and telling you about why I'm here, why I want to have a podcast at all, and why I feel entitled to speak on topics such as health, nutrition, public health, and walking a winding path to where I am today. So first of all, a little bit about me. I'm Marion, and I have walked a very winding path to get here. Once upon a time, I was born. And then I was a little kid and I was overweight. I was quite unhealthy. I suffered from multiple chronic illnesses, including recurring infections, um, as well as at certain points I had depression, I had anxiety, and I was overweight and eventually obese. After that, I subsequently became a food-obsessed teenager, I was at one point underweight, and then when I was 18, I became a teen mom to a baby with about a dozen life-threatening anaphylactic food allergies. That was really a wake-up call for me. I felt very instinctively that there was something going on with my body and my health that had led her to have so many allergies, and that experience sent me on a quest to figure out what was going on, and why no one had any answers for me, and why so many supposed experts had failed me and my daughter over the course of my lifetime. So for example, I had put my trust in doctors since the day I was born, and over and over and over, their approach to my health had let me down and made me sicker. And now my daughter was sick, and the best anyone could do for me was give me an EpiPen and say, good luck. So I decided that I would have to figure that out on my own, as I had figured out many other health issues on my own. And I kind of made my whole life about that. Um, At the same time, obviously, when food is part of your health journey, it's important that you learn more about food, where it comes from, and also how to make it taste good. So I also threw myself into learning how to cook, and especially how to cook low allergen and anti-inflammatory foods that could heal my daughter, but also taste good and be fun for her. Um, I didn't want my daughter ever to feel like she didn't fit in or couldn't fit in or couldn't enjoy foods, even though she had so many allergies. When she was a baby, she was allergic to uh, gluten, dairy, eggs, nuts, soy, sunflower seeds, um, and also at a certain point, chocolate, strawberries, and cinnamon Um, And for a while, all legumes. So literally any legume, including peas, she could not have when she was little, and especially like chickpeas and lentils. Um, She was allergic to all of them. And even a lot of foods that said that they were made for people with allergies often would have sunflower seeds. So it was really just a minefield out there. And this was 17 years ago. So gluten-free was not cool or sexy. It wasn't a buzzword. You couldn't just go to the store and buy gluten-free bread You definitely couldn't buy gluten-free, egg-free, dairy-free bread. That's actually still difficult to find, Um, but there just weren't any options. So I taught myself to cook and spent a lot of time working on 
recipes so that I could cook and bake for her and so that she would not only not feel left out and have options um, like goodies and treats to share with her friends, but also so that she could heal. And I really uh, was convinced, despite what everyone told me, that food allergies could be healed and cured and understood from a root cause perspective. I'm still on that journey, and we'll get back to that. But um, that's kind of my origin story leading me into the world of health. The origin story leading me into the world of podcasting is that I've always been a storyteller. When I was a kid, I had a few dream careers. One of them was author or journalist, um, and another was like a CNN news anchor. And actually, when I was in high school, I was the president of my high school's TV news station, CCN. And I was a lead PM news anchor, and I just always loved being on camera. And when I was going off to college, I decided I was either going to study hotel and restaurant management or radio, television, film, journalism. And pretty much every program I applied to was for... TV journalism, except for one, which was Cornell, was for hotel restaurant management. And of course, I got into Cornell and I went there. So I left the um, news girl version of me behind when I was 17 and went off to college. But she's back. And she really never left because I've always enjoyed, again, telling stories, sharing stories. When I owned my restaurant, which is another part of my long journey, Um, I did my own radio ads, and that was really fun for me. So I've just always enjoyed the process of producing and being a part of media. And I also really think that something that's missing often from the world of health and nutrition um, and from like the more science-y side of health is just personal narrative, personal experience, and kind of stories that are very human and allow us to engage with the gray area of complex topics We really, as humans, um, we want things to be simple. We want things to be black and white, or at least the media and the way that stories are told would love for things to be simple, black and white, clear cut. And that's just so rarely the truth about things. So my mission in life tends to be to engage with the truth. And that truth is usually pretty complex, messy, and personal. So I'm here to share my own messy truths, my own journey and exploration, which is not just informed by my lived experience, but also very much backed up by education and research and data and science. So after becoming a teen mom and throwing myself into figuring out how to cook for and feed and heal and and nourish and nurture my child... I decided then that one of the best things that I could do would be to open a restaurant that served healthy food. And this was 2010 that I had the idea. And the idea that I had was that I believed that all disease, especially diseases of immunity and autoimmunity, were rooted in the gut and the gut microbiome. Again, 2010, this was not a buzzword or trending yet, but I had this kind of instinctive, intuitive feeling because when I was a kid, I had massive doses of antibiotics over and over and over, and then I had all these health issues. And I just kind of thought, hmm, those things seem really connected to me, and I feel like the destruction of my gut through antibiotics is the root cause of like so many of my health issues, digestive issues, skin issues, mental health issues, 
and having a baby with allergies. So I decided to open the world's first kombucha cocktail bar um, called Culture Shock. And I conceptualized and created the whole thing pretty much by myself, which is kind of crazy when I look back on it. Honestly, I'm not totally sure how I did it. I think it was like a fugue state because I was 23, 24, and I had like a five-year-old, four-year-old, and I just made it happen. So I opened Culture Shock, and we served live cultured foods. Every single item on the menu had a live cultured component. So again, like from the beginning of my journey um, in the world of health and nutrition, I've had this focus on live cultured foods and the microbiome, and that's always been really important to me. Um, long story there, uh, lots of ups and downs, lots of lessons learned, such as don't rent from a predatory landlord, but that chapter of my life closed and uh, I moved down to Washington, D.C. to be closer to family and um, met my husband, married him. We had one daughter and then another daughter. So now there's three girls in the picture. And I did a lot of things with my second two daughters um, differently from my first. The first was that I had time to focus on my own microbiome and replenishing it, restoring it, and eating in a very nutrient-dense and health-focused way, immune-focused way, during and after pregnancy and while nursing. Um, and also like probiotics now existed on the market. There were ways to add microbes back into the body. So I experimented a lot with my own babies, um, giving them probiotics and fermented foods. I think they both had kombucha for the first time when they were like six months old, um, just a tiny bit, but you know, a little bit and both nursed for a long time. And, um, neither one of them has any anaphylactic food allergies. So Lots to unpack there, but again, part of my own personal story and journey is self-experimentation. Um, I have a motto with myself, which is N equals one, which if you're familiar with scientific uh, research papers, um, when we talk about like how many people were part of an experiment or how many papers were reviewed as part of a research paper, um, N refers to like the body of evidence, right? Like the number of participants. So for me, my life is an experiment and N equals one. Or maybe more accurately, N equals like five, because I'm always experimenting on not just my children, but also my husband and myself. Um, okay, so all of this is to say that I have this long personal journey with overcoming health issues and using diet, lifestyle, nutrition, supplements, targeted nutrients, and probiotics especially, focusing on healing everything from the inside out, focusing on the gut where everything emanates from. Um, and then we'll skip past a couple parts of my professional journey because honestly, I've walked such a winding path. We have to save something for another day. But a few years ago in November of 2019, I just suddenly woke up and snapped and I thought, I have to finish school. I have to finish my education because when I had my daughter, I dropped out of school and then she was chronically ill, and it's very difficult to be a young single mom with a chronically ill toddler and also return to college at your Ivy League institution. So I tried a few times. I went back and forth, but I dropped out eventually um, because it sort of seemed like every single time I had a final, she would get sick. Um, and so I just kind of gave up. And so a few years ago, woke up and decided now is my moment. 
And I was very fortunate to reach out to someone in my network who I loved and respected. And I asked her opinion about what I should do, uh, where I should go. And she said, you know, I think that with your love of nutrition and health and also like business and management, I think you'd really love public health. And I literally had never heard of public health. I didn't even know what that was. Also, the public had not yet heard of public health because we were pre-pandemic. But I said, um, sure, I'll check it out. So I went home. I looked it up. I checked out this curriculum for public health, and I totally loved it. Everything about it was a yes for me. Um, I have a background. I also went to school and studied holistic health counseling, and I'm certified in that. And a lot of public health is like this health promotion aspect. So that really resonated with my health coach personality. Um, But it also really resonated with my business personality and my nutrition background. So um, it kind of all came together and felt like a perfect fit. And then, of course, I applied. I was accepted. I enrolled. And then a pandemic hit. And suddenly we were all studying public health together. So I went from, um, you know, being a... Ivy League dropout to graduating with my bachelor's um, in two years. I powered through during the height of the pandemic, did a lot of my classes with my um, third daughter, like sitting in my lap. And then I went off to Georgetown to get a master's in biomedical science policy and advocacy. And I found that program because I was looking for something unique and interesting um, that really kind of would allow me to blend my passion for policy and big picture system-based change making, but also allow me to go deeper into my exploration of human health and the microbiome. And I was very fortunate to find this niche program with an incredible woman who runs it, who is a world expert in the microbiome and the impact that it has on a variety of health conditions. So under her guidance, I was able to get my master's and write a really unique capstone project on how to use public policy to protect and nurture and nourish the microbiome. So that brings us pretty much back to the present. And I want to circle back to what I said earlier about the fact that this podcast has two alternate working titles in my own mind. One of them being something like Reflections on Walking a Winding Path, and the other one being No Skinny Experts. Reflections on Walking a Winding Path, I think, is pretty straightforward. I've walked a very winding path to get to where I am today. Nothing about my journey has been linear, and there have been so many things that I've done that seemed super tangential to my sort of root goal and my North Star, and yet all these ups and downs and stumbles and twists and turns led me to where I am today. And like now in hindsight, I can see how everything I learned while stumbling was very critical to the expertise that I have now amassed. And also along this journey, I've met so many incredible, brilliant people, many of them women who I love, cherish and admire. And most of them have also walked a very winding path. So I think that One of my main goals for this podcast is not to just sit here and talk myself at long length, but to actually interview people that I know that I'm very fortunate to be networked with in my own life and to talk about their lives, how they've gotten to where they are and um, all the different ways that walking a winding, twisting, non-traditional path has led them to be the badass, amazing, creative, interesting, unique experts that they are today. The other working title 
No Skinny Experts stems from um, some painful experiences that I had as a child and also from some interesting ones that I've had as an adult. So I remember being a kid, being overweight, being obese, and going to the doctor. And here's my doctor, and he's like, you know, some middle-aged, like, skinny white guy. And he's like, just kind of telling me, like, well, eat less and move more. Like, just eat less and move more, you know? Just, like, don't gain weight. Okay, bye. Like, have a great day. And I remember thinking, like, you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what I'm going through. No idea. And I don't want to perform for you. And I don't want to lose weight for you. Like, fuck you, basically, is how I felt at, like, age, you know, eight or whatever. And... That feeling has come up for me again and again in the public health space when I'm in a room with public health experts who are experts in public health nutrition and you just look at them and you know they've been skinny since the day they were born (laughs) and they just have no idea. And if you go um, and look into like who some of the leading health and nutrition experts are some of them there are a few who um, are big names who have like public experiences with like losing weight and stuff I know there are a couple um, trainers that stand out in my mind who have like experiences that they've shared with the public about previously being overweight Um, one of them is Tunde from Peloton she was overweight as a kid and she talks about that another one was this woman Erica who was a trainer on the biggest loser she like was overweight and lost weight so Much respect to them, um, especially for sharing their journey, but much respect to everyone. But in my opinion, in my experience, when it comes to a topic as complicated as nutrition, health, and obesity, if you've never experienced it and you think you're an expert, you have no idea. And if you're talking to overweight and obese people and telling them that you have solutions for them, but you have no idea what it feels like to be in their body or have never had to like not eat when you were hungry. You just, it just sort of feels like you have no right. And so I really think that to be an expert in something, you need to have lived it to some extent to truly be an expert. I had a professor at American who would always say that um, when people get PhDs in something, it's usually a thing that, um, they have a lot of personal experience with like the quote is something like research is always me search and that's cute and it rhymes um but i don't know i think in the field of nutrition and obesity it's often not true like i i've i've looked around the room often when i'm surrounded by like dietitians and nutrition experts and i don't think a lot of them have been obese. I think a lot of them were like former athletes or maybe had an eating disorder or have been like skinny or like struggled with food but not often with childhood obesity. So I come at this from a very unique lived perspective. And my perspective is unique in a lot of ways. Um, And then the other thing that happened to me as an adult that makes me want to say like no skinny experts is that this past summer, I was very fortunate to get a job working as a report writer for a task force report to the White House Conference on Nutrition, Hunger, and Health. It was an amazing experience. I met so many incredible people, experts in the field, policy experts, um, and I was in rooms with them and many, many, many hours of meetings. 
and people were sharing ideas for policy recommendations in the space of health and nutrition and um, food. And food includes like grocery and food programs, things like SNAP and WIC, and also just like grocery in general. And I remember one day I was sitting in a room with, again, experts, like incredible, brilliant minds. And they were talking about um, policy recommendations to make grocery stores healthier and to make food merchandising healthier, more health promoting. There are whole frameworks around um, making the built environment more health promoting, like environmentally tailoring things to make healthy choices more the default. So for example, you can picture it like here's a shelf in front of you. If it's full of Doritos or, you know, brand name, taco chip, whatever, um, that's what you're going to grab. And if it's full of apples, then maybe you'll grab that. There's all sorts of bodies of knowledge around this. Some of it came out of Cornell University, um, just about like how you can build your environment to orchestrate and promote and nudge healthy choices. So here were all these experts in this room talking about all their big ideas for how to get grocery stores to merchandise in a healthier way. And listening to them talk, I was like, um, has anyone here ever worked in or managed a grocery store? And they were all like, no, why? <laughs> like, why would we have had to work in a business or an industry or have any experience with it? To make policy recommendations, obviously, like everyone grocery shops, like we just, we all get it, right? And I have worked in a grocery store and managed a grocery store and managed a food business and understand like labor costs and margins and like how thin the margins are in a grocery store and how if I'm depending on making labor for my budget and I'm counting on Frito-Lay sending in their sales guy to stock my shelves, then... I'm not going to really be able to adapt to your healthy merchandising policy suggestions. It's going to impact my bottom line, right? So basically there was no one else in the room thinking about this because they were all like very experienced, very heavy, very educated experts in policy and health and nutrition, but they hadn't actually worked in the field. And it just gave me a sense that like if I was seeing this in this one small space, this one tiny area of policymaking – that this is probably happening everywhere. And I won't get into everywhere because I'm not an expert in everywhere, but just to talk about like public health policy, healthcare policy, nutrition policy, things involving human health and disease and food and food access and obesity. There are lots of recommendations and policies and guidelines being put together by people who just really haven't been there and haven't experienced it and don't have the lived experience. And I think that that is really short-sighted and can lead to a lot of unintended negative consequences. So one of the reasons that I want to have this podcast to share my story and also to interview other people with really interesting, compelling, and diverse lived experiences to share their stories is that I think that we need that. I think that the world of public health, health policy, and nutrition, and human health in general needs people to tell real stories and to wade into this murky gray area where the truth really lives. Because if we don't do that and we try to force people into either black or white or one side of an issue, we're never going to get to the truth of it. And that's not where healing happens, right? Like healing happens in the messy gray area and we need to go there. Okay. So finally, I think that this podcast is a manifestation of me being a very curious person who's never once in my life been satisfied with the easy answers, who always wants to go further, and who now has actually 
gone the distance in my education. So I don't just have a curious mind. I don't just have hunches and intuition and lived experience. I now also have a formal degree background, multiple degrees to add to that. I've done so much research. I've written so many papers and I've read so many papers and I continue to stay engaged and to work in the field and engage with policymakers and health policy professionals and healthcare professionals and academics and I think it's really time to have this kind of conversation, one that merges the personal, the professional, the academic, the science, data-driven, but also the one that includes real human experience and one that, you know, listens to people's real lived stories, including their childhoods and their emotional health, their mental health, their physical health, and really acknowledges that all of this is connected. You can't really heal one thing without healing another and that if you're trying to create a one-size-fits-all solution or a one-industry-fits-all solution such as the pharmaceutical industry that you're probably missing the bigger picture and you're not going to get the results that you want so let's shift a little bit after that long and thorough introduction I wanted to pivot and talk a little bit for today's episode um, about a topic that I've mentioned that's very near and dear to my heart and that also is very much in the public eye right now and in the public conversation and it's a topic that I think is poorly handled and incorrectly discussed and is pretty much only talked about by skinny experts or people who don't have the lived experience and are relying on you know, just things that they've read to try to inform their experience. Um, and that is childhood obesity. Childhood obesity is a really complicated topic. So as you can tell, I love to start light. I love to pick an easy topic to kick it off. Couldn't have just done baking. Couldn't have just done recipe development, right? Um, but here we are. I want to talk about childhood obesity because I've experienced it and because it is an increasing issue and a threat to the health of our nation's children and the children of the world. And also because the way that it's being addressed in the public space is, again, I think, short-sighted and incorrect. And the conversation is largely driven by people who seek to profit from their suggestions about how to handle it. And I don't begrudge anyone trying to create solutions to a complex problem. Again, I recognize that it's very complex. I've lived it and I see it and I get it. But when we try to make these one size fits all solutions um, or try to have people create solutions that haven't experienced it themselves or don't necessarily care what happens in the long term to the people that are undertaking their temporary solutions, Um, we are staring down the barrel of unintended consequences that are only going to make people sicker and be very expensive and disastrous. Um, So I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was a kid, I was overweight, obese, right? Then I lost a bunch of weight really quickly. When I did that, it like destroyed my gallbladder. Something about this extreme rapid weight loss, you know, asking my body to process and metabolize all that fat that quickly. I lost like 60 pounds in a six-month period. It taxed my gallbladder so much that I began to have severe gallbladder pain. I was like 15 years old, and I was having these horrible gallstone attacks. 
And um, that's not common <laughs> for a 15 year old, I'll tell you what. And so I went to the doctor and they did an ultrasound and I was in a lot of pain and I was 15 and I hadn't yet figured out all the solutions and I wasn't quite as, you know, holistic and like self-healing as I am today. And the doctor said, oh yeah, you have gallstones. So like, we'll just take your gallbladder out. Um, you don't need it. You don't need it. There's an organ in your body and it helps you digest and we're going to take it and you're 15 years old and we only usually ever do this surgery on people in their 60s or above, but you don't need it and you'll be fine. And you know, I was in pain and I was 15 years old. Like I was making all kinds of short-sighted dumb decisions when I was 15 years old, but I was like, sure, take it. Who needs it? I trust you. You're my doctor. That decision still impacts me today. Like I will never be able to not think about the fact that I don't have a gallbladder. If I had gallbladder disease today, if I had gallstones, I would approach it in a completely different way. But that option was not given to me because my gallbladder was taken from me by a doctor who had a short-term solution to my acute problem that stemmed from a much bigger problem and actually had a much bigger and much more complex solution that it required. But their short-term solution has now basically, you know, to put it very delicately, like permanently maimed me. I mean, I'm fine, right? I'm healthy. I'm making it happen. But I will forever have to think about how much fat I consume, the amount that I consume, you know, the volume. Um, it's not something that I can just like go through life and take for granted that my liver and my gallbladder are best friends who are working together. Like my liver is very lonely. So I wish that hadn't happened to me. And so stemming from that experience, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about the way that children struggling with obesity are being treated today. And recently, I think it was like three months ago, maybe two months ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with their official guidelines and recommendations for practitioners, how to think about and talk about childhood obesity. And uh, I read them so you don't have to is basically um, the name of this next segment. But um, you still could read them for sure. I don't know if anyone actually has. I really have a hard time picturing in today's healthcare climate where doctors are just rushed from patient to patient and have no time for their patients and spend so much time on notes and um, just are constantly trying to figure out how to make the finances of their office and also healing people work at the same time. Um, I can't picture what doctors have actually sat down and read these guidelines, but hopefully some of them have. However, the guidelines are really challenging. Um, and I did take notes, so they're in front of me. Don't judge me for having to reference them. I do love to uh, memorize things, but I don't want to miss anything. So I want to start with, um, something really quick about science in general is that unfortunately, fortunately, producing science, producing anything costs money. And it's really difficult to not let where that money comes from influence how you talk about things, right? Like, we really want to be unbiased. And scientists do a really good job oftentimes of being really unbiased, um, and some better than others. And people try really hard. But when you're producing guidelines and they're sponsored by, for example, formula manufacturers, it's going to be really difficult to go into the kind of detail in your guidelines um, 
to really dig into like the extent to which introducing formula too early into a baby's diet puts them at risk for obesity, right? So the American Academy of Pediatrics is predominantly sponsored by pharmaceutical companies and um, nutrition companies who, when you click on them and do a little digging, they are mostly formula manufacturers and also processed food manufacturers. They do also have among their sponsors some toy companies. Um, shout out to Melissa and Doug. I have a friend who works there, and they are a great toy company. They make nice wooden toys. Um, another one of their sponsors is Amazon. So, you know, um, Amazon, complicated company. They do, of course, sell groceries. Um, they do own Whole Foods, so they sell some healthy natural foods. But I'm sure they also make tons of money selling processed foods, right? Shipped right to the door. So again, just taking a quick pause before we go into these guidelines and some of the issues that I have with them, which represent some of the issues with the conversation around childhood obesity in general, I just want to acknowledge that who funds the science does impact the way that the science can talk about itself. And some of the things that I noticed in the guidelines were like a little bit of word salad around complex issues where maybe you could have been more direct, but you didn't want to quite say it in a way that might offend your sponsors. So you figured out how to say it a little bit uh, differently. Okay, so in the beginning of the guidelines, it says, long stigmatized as a reversible consequence of personal choices, obesity has complex genetic, physiologic, socioeconomic, and environmental contributors. As the environment has become increasingly obesogenic, access to evidence-based treatment has become even more crucial. Okay, that's a compelling statement, and I don't disagree with that. I think that it's true that in the past we kind of just thought, oh, if someone's obese, like obviously they eat too much and don't move enough. And like now we're acknowledging it's much more complicated than that. There are socioeconomic drivers. There are like access issues. There are issues of structural racism. There are issues of, um, they mention a lot in the guidelines, that people who have had one or more adverse childhood events or ACEs are at higher risk for both childhood and lifetime obesity. Um, on the other hand, they make this comment that the environment has become increasingly obesogenic and they really never fully unpack that or when they do address some of the ways that that's the case, they very much tiptoe around, um, the meat of it. Like they don't talk much about food deserts and food swamps. Like they touch on it but they don't go heavily into it. And they certainly don't go into um, sort of the capitalistic corporate factors behind that, like the policy drivers. Again, they touch on it, but they don't go in depth. Another really important thing at the, at the jump of these guidelines is that they say that the guidelines do not cover the prevention of obesity, which will be addressed in a forthcoming AAP policy statement. And the note that I took on that was WTF. Because, I mean, I get it. I get that this document is already like way too long. It's very long. Look it up. It is, it's long and it's dense. So I get that they couldn't cover everything. But in a kind of landmark, groundbreaking, big press release blown up, American Academy of Pediatrics is talking about obesity. You're not going to talk about prevention. You're not going to talk about the role that like, 
the food system and the schools and school food and nutrition programs, like you really aren't going to talk about prevention. That to me is mind blowing. It really feels like a huge oversight. I think that in this document, which was blown up and splashed about that you should go there, that you should talk about how important it is to prevent obesity, primary prevention, right? Like not this secondary or tertiary prevention, but preventing it before it begins, because that is really the most compelling thing. And it's where so much of the evidence is, um, is that like where obesity starts, this root cause then kind of spirals and compounds on itself. So if we're not talking about prevention, like what are we talking about? Um, yeah, so that was a that was a pretty big oversight in my opinion. Um, okay, also they make all kinds of statements throughout this, again, very long, very complex document on how complex obesity is and how the environment plays a big role, um, although they're very vague with that term environment. Um, they mention racism a lot, which, you know, obviously does play a role here. Um, they almost never mention food. Like the word food doesn't even show up for page upon page upon page. It is just buried, buried deeply, deeply in there. And when they do bury it, uh, like when they do finally mention it, it's super jumbled. So I pulled out this quote because um, it bothered me. <laughs> it bothered me. It was a after I read this quote that I went and looked into who sponsored the report. Okay, buried deep in this report, odd fumbling language. And I quote, disparities exist among children and youth with obesity, including but not limited to lower level of parental education, lower income, less access to healthier food options and safe and affordable physical activity opportunities, and higher incidence of ACEs, the adverse childhood events. Okay, so first of all, weird sentence. Second of all, food didn't even get its own, like, its own part of the sentence. They, they, they lump food access and physical activity access into one part of the sentence. Food, like we're talking about obesity, right? Maybe the ultimate diet-driven disease, which by the way, the report goes on and on, makes a point to say that they are defining obesity as an illness. So we could unpack that, maybe I will, but that is their definition. Obesity is a chronic illness. It's a diet-related illness, right? Like, yes, complex, many factors. I agree. I've experienced it. We can go into it. But it involves food. And yet here we are, buried deep in this report, is this one sentence about how complex it is. And buried in that sentence is this messy little less access to healthier food options and safe and affordable physical activity opportunities. What? That's it? We're not going to have a whole paragraph on, on grocery stores, we're not going to talk about fresh food programs and the lack of farmers markets and certain zip codes like, you know, where's where's the part about um, the loss of home economics in school? Where's the part about how kids in inner cities have often never actually seen a fresh fruit or vegetable? Years ago, I was working as director of sales for a natural food company, and I ran a food promotion fundraising thing with a local food kitchen that had a teaching garden. And it was so awesome. And I think it was, um, 
lost in the pandemic. I think they shut down. Maybe they're open again, and I hope so. I'll have to look into that. But um, Capital Area Food Bank had a demonstration garden, and there was this awesome woman who was running it, and she would go into the D.C. inner city and get kids and bring them out to the garden and put on classes. And she told me that most of the kids that came to the garden had never seen a carrot before, like a regular carrot out of the ground. And it just like blew their minds. How can we have a report from the American Academy of Pediatrics that is talking about childhood obesity and it's not talking about the basics of children knowing what real food looks like? How? Isn't that a massive and disturbing oversight? I think it is. Just one mom's one mom's opinion, one chef's opinion, one public health policy girl's opinion, one former obese child's opinion. It is what it is. Okay, moving along. Later in the report, it mentions something that is a big focus of my research, which is the fact that there is a huge body of evidence connecting early life antibiotic exposure to the risk of childhood obesity. And this is not new news, by the way. Um, if you're a farmer in 1940s America, you're 1950s America, you are giving your farm animals antibiotics to make them fat. It is known among farmers that giving antibiotics to an animal makes them feed efficient, meaning they extract and absorb more calories from their food if they've been given antibiotics. So what, are humans not animals? Are we exempt from those rules? Guess what? We're not. So when the human gut microbiome is altered and damaged through antibiotic exposure, especially in early life, we also become more feed efficient and it makes us absorb more calories. And in the last actually few weeks, there have been some groundbreaking studies coming out talking about different types of food and microbiome modulations and how calories are absorbed from the diet through the microbiome. But in this report, again, they pay a little bit of lip service to it. They just drop it in there. And there's this one line, um, it says, gut microbiota is usually established during the first years of life. It is hypothesized that the effect of antibiotics is mediated through the alteration of the gut microbiome, which plays a role in energy balance. The fact that that is just one sentence, again, my mind is blown. This is it, guys. This is the meat and potatoes right here. We are loading up our children with antibiotics. It is destroying their gut microbiomes. And then we're feeding them nutrient-poor, calorie-dense, ultra-processed junk foods that are hyper-palatable, super addictive, and already very energy-dense. They're over-consuming them, and they're over-extracting from them because their antibiotic exposure makes them more feed-efficient. And now we have a generation of overweight and obese kids. But it's just one little line. It's just one little line. It's like, and it just gets thrown away, blown away. A brief mention of the gut microbiota, which again, there's a whole body of research around this. I, I myself have written many papers on it um, and read just hundreds of papers on it. Um, but they just gave it a quick, a quick one-liner. And then this line, you know, like it's hypothesized that antibiotics alter the gut microbiome and plays a role in energy balance. Okay. Yeah. Um, would love to see more about that. Would love to see um, more recommendations and guidelines around restricting the use of antibiotics in young children. 
um, would love to see different methods of reducing infection. Would love to talk about the role of diet and infection susceptibility, but nope, we're not going to go into any of that in this report. We're just going to um, go on. They have a list of um, known obesogenic medications. And I just want to be clear, like this list, so obesogenic, if that's not obvious, it's something that promotes obesity, right? Drives obesity, creates obesity. So an obesogenic environment maybe is saturated with unhealthy foods and has nowhere to go for a jog safely. Um, and obesogenic medications, pharmaceuticals, are things that actually promote weight gain in the body. So like the overuse of antibiotics is known to be obesogenic. But also on this list of common obesogenic medications are things that are now routinely prescribed to children like antidepressants and also antihistamines. So this is where, again, like we have to wade into the complexity of these issues and how they all connect. Because if you have a disrupted microbiome, you're also going to be more likely to have immune issues, autoimmune issues, um, histamine issues. So now you have someone who maybe had an infection, they got lots of antibiotics, now they're having allergy issues, their microbiome's already disrupted, now they're taking antihistamines, eating a calorie-dense, nutrient-poor diet, suddenly they're obese. There are so many complex factors here that all kind of share a root cause, and we could address that root cause and alleviate their histamine issues and alleviate their tendency to put on weight, maybe even alleviate some of their cravings for ultra-processed foods, but instead... We're piling on more and more and more medications, which are actually obesogenic themselves. And then we're like, it's so weird that we have this obesity problem. What is going on? We should probably have weight loss surgery and weight loss pharmaceuticals for children. Um, yeah. Yeah, there we are. Okay, another line from the report. Tracking obesity across the lifespan underscores the importance of primary and secondary prevention and treatment efforts early in life. These efforts include evaluating for obesity using BMI, identifying children at high risk and adolescents, providing or referring to evidence-based obesity treatments for children, youth, and their families, and addressing the social determinants of health. Do you notice that nutrition is not on that list? Is that not, is that not strange? I think it's strange. Um, and then again, obesity is a chronic disease and should be treated with intensive and long-term care strategies, provision of ongoing medical monitoring, and treatment of associated comorbidities and ongoing access to obesity treatment. The evidence for pediatric obesity treatment that is presented in this CPG shows that several treatments are effective in treating both obesity and related comorbidities. It is important to note, however, that in all of these studies, if the treatment is discontinued, children tend to regain weight and lose the attendant health benefits. There is limited longitudinal evidence about durability of weight change after treatment. I'm still pausing for a dramatic effect. I'm going to read that one more time. There is limited longitudinal evidence about durability of weight change after treatment. Then what the fuck is the treatment? Like, what is the point of giving a child, a person who is in the developmental phase of their life, who is still becoming, who is figuring out who they are, and who probably, statistically speaking, doesn't know how to cook, 
doesn't even know what a real carrot looks like, doesn't have anyone lovingly preparing meals for them at home, right, has been exposed to adverse childhood events, has traumas, has stress, is short on sleep, is maybe living in a marginalized community, doesn't have access to fresh foods, is eating fast food and nutrient-poor foods, and their body is desperately craving real nutrition and real food and to have real authentic interactions with food and the environment and to be a human in this world. And you want to give that person a drug And tell them, you have a chronic disease. You're diseased. But I can fix it with this drug. But if you stop taking the drug, the disease will come back. Really? That's the best that we have for children in America that are struggling with obesity and overweight? Come on. As a public health professional, I'm horrified. As someone who has studied health and nutrition policy, I'm horrified. As someone who has studied enough of health and nutrition policy to know that there are so many policies in place that actually promote and support an obesogenic environment, I'm horrified. And finally, as a former fat kid, as someone who was obese, who had doctors saying to me, hmm, you have something wrong with you. You should fix it. I'm horrified. Childhood obesity is complicated. It has many factors. They include structural, environmental, socioeconomic, social determinants of health, stress, sleep, different factors that impact the metabolism, such as environmental contaminants, And most importantly, maybe, microbiome disruption, both through antibiotic exposure and also through exposure to chemicals, plastics, nutrient-poor processed foods, flame retardants, forever chemicals, pollution. But it's not a disease that requires a medication for a lifetime. That is crazy. And it's really an unfair way to talk to and treat children who are tiny citizens and the future of this country and the world. And I was a little kid and I was overweight and I struggled and I battled with my body and I thought, why me? Why am I overweight? You know, how come my friend can eat Doritos and Cheetos and Fritos and all the O's and still be skinny and whatever? And I'm like this and I'm all inflamed and all this stuff. And guess what? There was a time when it felt like there was no good answer and it just felt like, ugh, why me? Hashtag genetics. But then I figured out the complicated answers. And I just want to be very clear. Like, I am now a healthy, fit, muscular, healthy weight person. I do not struggle to maintain my weight. I am not fighting a battle against the disease of obesity. That is not my experience. I have had three pregnancies. I have gained and lost 50 pounds each time. And every time it was a joy and easy. Because once I figured out what was happening with me, that my gut was destroyed, that I wasn't absorbing my food properly, that my body was crying out for help. And once I was able to work on that and calm my body and reduce the inflammation and repair my gut in so many ways and learn to love and appreciate myself and move my body, everything began to make sense, right? My body began to 
give me clearer signals. It wasn't just an emergency all the time like it was when I was 200 plus pounds. Suddenly, I could actually hear what my body was trying to say, which was like, hey, those foods don't work for you. Try something else, you know, have some protein, lift a few weights. But I'm not someone who gets up in the morning and hops on the treadmill and burns calories and tracks my macros. And I just I don't I'm not fighting a battle against the disease of obesity. I'm just not an obese person anymore. I was an obese kid. There were many complex issues. Why? Including trauma, including antibiotics, including inflammation, including diet. And now I'm not. This is my body. Right? It's healed. It's complicated. It's a human. It's a person. It's a real lived experience. And the fact that what the American Academy of Pediatrics, this organization that claims to promote the health and wellness of our nation's children, the fact that the best they have for us right now on obesity is like basically long term drug use, but if you stop it, they're going to get fat again. And like, also like, sorry that like the environment's really bad. And like, here's one line about how there should be policies to fix it. And like, I mean, probably healthy food would be better. And there's like one line about how like breastfeeding longer reduces risk, but like we can't say too much about it because like this is paid for by the formula companies. That's all they have for us. Come on. Come on. (sighs) Okay. This is a long form podcast, obviously, but we're not going for like three hour, like I'm not Lex Friedman right now. So we're just going to, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to bring it home. I'm sure that when I have guests on and we go into the depths of two people's opinions that we can take it to the three hour mark. But for today, let's, let's just let good enough be good enough. So I want to conclude with some wrap up thoughts. First of all, thank you so much for listening And I would love to hear from you. If you have thoughts, if you have experiences as an overweight kid or as an overweight adult, if you have complex ideas on this topic, if you are a skinny expert but feel like that's justified, or if you're an expert whose expertise is informed by lived experience, I would love to hear from you. Please feel free to message me, um, email me. I'll put all of my contact information in the notes down below. Um, And I want to wrap it up with this. I am super excited to start this podcast. I really think that um, there's a lot that we need to talk about. And I'm excited to jump into this conversation with all of you and to have on some really interesting guests. You know, again, I've walked this winding path and I've been so fortunate on that path to meet incredible, brilliant people who I get to call near and dear friends. And I cannot wait to have them on and talk to them and introduce you to them and get their opinions on some really uh, tricky, complex issues in the space of health, nutrition, and public health, the microbiome, autoimmunity, et cetera, all these things that we really need to address as a country whose healthcare bills are skyrocketing and whose food is more expensive than ever. Like, it's time. We have to have these conversations. Um, Again, I would love questions or comments. Um, Anything you want to send at me, please do. I'll try to address them and future podcasts. And once again, I just want to thank you for listening and encourage you and appreciate you for diving into complex issues and spending time in the gray area and in the wild human animal experience because we are humans, we have real stories to tell, 
and these big policy issues, healthcare issues, they only really exist as they are experienced by people. If we let them exist only in the forum of policy conversations, we're doing all of us a huge disservice. And so it's time for us to really humanize these conversations and unite the lived experience with the world of policy development and health and nutrition conversations. So thanks again for listening. Once again, I'm Marion Flaxman, and this has been the very first episode of the Marion Flaxman Network. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.